Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to The Bunker Start Your Week, your need to know on news and politics. I'm Ros Taylor and joining me this week is Alex Andreu. Hello, Alex. Hi, Ros. Good morning. Good morning. For some of us, it's the last full working week before Christmas and I imagine Rishi Sunak can't wait for it to be over. (laughs) He's up in front of the COVID inquiry today. Meanwhile, Tory MPs are telling us whether they'll back his Rwanda bill tomorrow. Some of them think it's too weak. Some of them think it goes too far. Oh, and Nigel Farage has just emerged from the jungle. And according to an excitable report in the Mail on Sunday, some MPs think they can win the next election with a dream ticket of him and Boris Johnson. Neither of them are actually MPs, but let's not let a little thing like that spoil the dream. (laughs) Alex, is the Eat Out to Help Out scheme likely to be the main focus at the COVID inquiry today? Because it was Sunak's idea. Yes, I think it will be one of the significant focuses. Um, We know it's come up a lot. Um, It will probably not come up until the afternoon because um, council's form so far has been to take things in chronological order, but it will come up. Um, And that is because I think it is the most glaring example of the government not following the science at a time it was insisting uh, that's what it was doing. I mean, it didn't even ask the science, actually, let alone follow it or not. Um, I mean, in in some ways, I think questions will be easier for Sunak to answer than many other people because he basically stayed within his brief. So he can say, look, it was my job as chancellor to make the economic argument. We had scientists and medical experts to make the epidemiological argument, and it was up to the prime minister to make the decisions. And so I think that is a slightly more comfortable position than than many people expect, actually. What else is he going to be asked about? Maybe COVID fraud, or is that not part of this module? He might be asked about it in the way uh, that it was set up and how quickly was it ready to go, that that sort of thing. Um, but, but, you know, Module 5 is specifically about procurement. So, so I don't think it, it will be extensive in that direction. Uh, I think he will be asked about the working environment in Downing Street. I think he will be asked about Partygate because those are things of which he has first-hand knowledge and experience. How does he tend to deal with hostile questioning? Oh, poorly. Uh, We've seen him in front of committees, we've seen him at PMQs, Mm. we've seen him at uh, uh, sort of presses where he's tried to stifle questions or ended uh, Q&As early. He gets tetchy, he gets petulant. uh, And this is not something he can do here. Um, on the bright side for Sunak, I think, he's really good at prep. <laughs> so he's he's good at cramming um, and revising and retaining information. And that will be to his advantage because I think his legal team will have rehearsed this 
a lot with him. So we may get that robotic thing you get from him where he repeats a phrase over and over and over again. The Rwanda bill is arguably a bigger headache for him this week. He has to stake his reputation on his ability to get it through. But since Labour will vote against that bill, it only needs 29 Tories to rebel for it to be defeated. We know the ex-immigration minister and now hero of the right, Robert Jenrick, won't be voting (laughs) for it. He told Laura Kunzberg so yesterday, but of course he could abstain. For the Tories who are worried it doesn't go far enough, the so-called star chamber, and I can't believe I have to use that phrase again, what is the main objection? I mean, we're not sure yet as they haven't given their opinion and they're doing so at midday today, Monday. Uh, But from the noises uh, so far, they seem to think it leaves too much of a door open for a a, a judicial challenge by not directly disapplying the provisions of the the European Convention of Human Rights. Basically, it comes down to a a really particular view of our democratic process, I think, as one in, in which the government should be able to do whatever it wants provided it can get the commons on board, which a a government usually can, right? Um, Because it it has a majority. The more orthodox view, in, in my mind, is that there is a sort of hierarchy to laws. And if you introduce provisions which are in direct conflict with other provisions, courts have to decide how how to resolve such conflicts and what to prioritize, right? And while Parliament is sovereign when it comes to the law, courts are the supreme fact finder. And I think this is something that a lot of people forget when it comes to this debate, right? Legislating to say Rwanda is safe is to try and predetermine a finding of fact. That is constitutionally problematic. So, in in short, Parliament could legislate that murder is no longer a a crime, but can it legislate to say that you, Roz, are definitely not guilty of a particular murder because the law says you were at the cinema? I'm not sure. Meanwhile, there are the One Nation Conservatives on the other side who think it does break international law and that Britain really shouldn't be doing that. Is the real problem for Sunak that whatever compromise he might make to please one side will only alienate the other side even more? Yeah, I mean, that is it in a nutshell. I mean, for what it's worth, my feeling is that the legislation will go through, by the way, um, uh, tomorrow. In the last few years, rebellions have tended to focus on specific amendments rather than to defeat the bill in principle at this stage of of its process. So that would be quite an unusual thing by historic standards. Even if people feel very, very strongly about it, they tend to abstain at this this stage. Of course, if enough of them end up abstaining because they have no way of knowing exactly how many people they will, will abstain, they could end up defeating it sort of by accident. And Sunak has staked so much on this that this could be, well be existential, couldn't it? I mean, mm, yeah. I, so that's another reason why they might not vote against it or abstain, because they don't particularly want an election in January or February. Yes, and, and I mean, stupidly has staked everything on it, it has to be said. This wasn't his plan. You know, this was conceived by Johnson and Priti Patel. 
Braverman adopted it zealously, but Sunak did not need to. Getting rid of Suela Braverman was a, a key point at which he could have unlashed himself from that particular mast. I mean, we could be in an environment right now where we're talking about successes, you know, where, where he was saying, we've brought um, uh, boat crossings down by a third and claiming it as a victory. Instead, he's doubling and tripling down on this notion that he will stop the boats and that the Rwanda bill is key to that. And it fails on sort of any test. And what on earth is the pasta plot, which has been talked of this weekend? <laughs> so apparently a group described by the Mail on Sunday as conspirators, a determined cabal of MPs and political strategists, uh, have been meeting at a, an Italian restaurant, Covent Garden, hence the pasta plotters, and they openly want to crash uh, Sunak's administration and installing new leader before the next election. Right, right. And Nigel Farage, out of the jungle, um, and <laughs> appearing on Morning TV, I believe, as we speak to each other. What is his role in all this? Does he have oh, one? So, Does he want one? So pleased I'm missing this. Um, I mean, some people are talking about a, a dream ticket, apparently, um, of Johnson and Nigel Farage. I mean, dream for some, nightmare for others. Um it, I guess there is a lot of people about at the moment claiming that, you know, Nigel Farage coming third is some monumental victory with the public. I would argue that, I mean, third is the asshole position traditionally on I'm a celebrity, right? Because you're keeping someone in there as long as possible to do as many trials as possible, but then they come nowhere near winning. Um, Matt Hancock came third last year. So, you know, if, if being as popular as Matt Hancock is the sort of bar you're aiming for, then sure, Nigel Farage smashed it. But uh, uh, my view is that they were hoping he might win it. Um, and there was a lot of noise and a lot of a big drive online to vote for Nigel, and so to to not come anywhere near the top, I think will be a disappointment, actually, to them. Well, there wasn't really enough of him on screen, was there, Alex? I mean, yeah, he was not so little silent, coverage. The silent majority once again decided to remain silent. Now, back to migration. It's not just illegal migration that's a problem. The new salary thresholds for family visas are upsetting a lot of people, aren't they? Yes, because, first of all, they are too high. Um, so they exclude loads of professions that we know we have shortages in. And second, they actually penalise British people who want to make a home with someone who's not a British citizen. Because, actually, if a couple of uh, people want to apply for a visa here, then you look at their joint income to see whether they can support themselves. But if someone wants to apply to come over here and live with a British person, then you look only at the British person's income who is already here. 
And so it's actually, it makes it more difficult um, for a mixed couple to to come and live in the UK than, than for a foreign couple. And so that seems to make very little sense to most people. What is Labour's position on this, I ask optimistically? Uh, according to Liz Kendall's interview on Sunday, they agree with a hike, um, which is pretty depressing. I mean, she didn't go into any detail. I suspect it has more to do with Labour not wanting to intervene at all while the Tories are basically tearing their party to ribbons. But it is depressing nonetheless. You know, we keep giving Labour a free pass and looking at them, hopefully, to say something, to make some point of principle, to take a stand on something. I mean, I get it. I understand it. I know why they're not doing it, because they don't want to fight the next election on the topic of immigration. They want to fight it on the economy. And that is why the Conservatives are doing everything they can, and the right-wing press is doing everything it can to switch Labour onto the topic of immigration. Um, and, they, and they're just not taking the bait at the moment. Politically, probably sensible. Uh, morally, philosophically, utterly depressing. There has been a lot of talk about a think tank report saying the degree of poverty in Britain is taking us back to Victorian times, but we can't expect to hear much about it in Parliament. Instead, the leasehold bill is back today. It was supposed to ban developers from selling new leasehold houses, but the drafters left that out because they were in a rush to get it into the King's speech. Let's hope they can sort that out. But this is generally a decent piece of legislation, isn't it? I mean, yes, the, the general consensus is that it moves in the, in the right direction. I would argue that it's a missed opportunity. You know, you can't have a, a sort of leasehold and freehold reform bill that doesn't actually significantly reform leasehold and freehold in a way that there is cross-party agreement it needs to reform it, right? Everyone agrees that leasehold is an antiquated and, and bizarre thing that should be no more. And yet, there it is, still surviving. And so, let's say a Labour government comes in next year, will they launch with sort of zeal into yet another leasehold and freehold reform? Probably not. So, yes, it moves in the right direction, but, I mean, unless you do it properly, don't do it. Mm, not far enough. And if Sunak isn't enough for you, there's a lot of exciting select committee action this week. David Cameron is going to be talking about our relationship with the EU. The boss of Thames Water is up. Victoria Atkins is going to explain how the new visa rules for care workers will work. And there is the new chair of the BBC, or planned new chair of the BBC, Samia Shah. Plus, we've got the latest GDP estimates coming up. The UN has warned that half of Gaza's population is starving, with many people living on just a piece of bread a day. There was talk of another ceasefire in the last few days, but what's become of that? I mean, the situation in Gaza is now just desperate. It's a catastrophe. The Israeli army is attacking um, Hamas with tanks in a really densely 
populated area full of civilians. I mean, you you can imagine what is the only possible result of that sort of thing. What analysts are saying is that behind the scenes, the IDF had asked for a period of two or three months to complete their military objectives, and that the US is now saying, you have a couple of weeks, um, which makes another ceasefire at, at this point really very unlikely, because basically Israel has a very, very limited time to do as much as it as much damage as it can to Hamas, um, and so I I don't know the extent to which these reports are accurate, but they are fairly widespread from you know people who know what they're talking about, and so I, I tend to take them at face value. So Christmas is perhaps a more likely time, not least because it's the optics of bombing is not great at Christmas. I think so, yeah. The war in Gaza has led to a furore in the US over free speech and anti-Semitism. What is the latest flashpoint? So, um, University of Pennsylvania President Liz McGill has resigned. Um, There was a, a sort of intense criticism from donors, from you know, a famous alumni from um, bigwigs in the education sector, basically, of her testimony at a congressional hearing that went on about uh, anti-Semitism on college campuses uh, just over a week ago. And she seemed to equivocate really on the matter of genocide. So she was asked... You know, if a crowd of people call for a genocide of all Jews, would it violate the university's code of conduct? I mean, my sense is that questions don't come easier than that, really. (laughs) You know, but she sort of tried to turn it into some toss-up between free speech and, uh, you know, and what happens if, speech turns into conduct and it can be harassment and so they're definitely against harassment it was very muddled and and she has now gone indeed and donald tusk is back he's not pm of poland yet what has to happen before <laughs> years so uh, he he's expected to become polish prime minister either tuesday evening or wednesday morning is my understanding it is eight weeks or so since the election and really he should have been in that position already but the president in poland is andrzej duda who is a a sort of law and justice party person and so he was giving every possible opportunity to the incumbent Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki to, uh, to form a government, um, but it really it was a delaying tactic. And Morawiecki has now run out of road in that process, and he must present a new government to the Polish equivalent of the House of Commons, so their lower legislative house, today, Monday, and that is followed by a vote of confidence. He's expected to lose that vote of confidence. He simply doesn't have the numbers. 
And so what the SEDGIM can do at that point is it can nominate its own candidate for prime minister. This is expected to be Donald Tusk, um, and he will present his government on Tuesday, um, again for a vote of confidence, which he's expected to uh, succeed. Um, They have already negotiated everything with the coalition partners, by the way, and even a cabinet has already been agreed. So we know who is going to be minister of what. Um, It's literally just a process of waiting for the official thing to kick in. Finally, COP28 finishes this week in Dubai. The final agreement's due on Tuesday. Thanks so much, Alex. (laughs) My pleasure. And you can support us to keep making bunkers for just £3 a month. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. I'm Ros Taylor, and thanks for listening. Start Your Week was written and presented by Ros Taylor with Alex Andre. It was produced by Podmasters Group Editor Andrew Harrison with audio production from me, Robin Lieber. Our music's by Kenny Dickinson, and The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.